All right, folks, welcome back to the Resilient Responder Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the first responder world and their families. Uh, I am your host, Keith Hanks. Uh, with me today is Brett Snow, former Chicago firefighter and medic. Uh, Brett, how are you doing today? Good, good, good. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me, Keith. Uh, I'm going to start the uh, the ribbon a little early. I'm going to have you say roof for me. Say roof. Uh, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, going to the roof, right? Yeah. There it is. Rough. I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Got to start with the humor, though, right? That's what the job yeah, was all no about. Doubt. And, and um, so when you give us a lowdown on, you know, who you are and kind of what, okay. what goes on in your life. <clears throat> yeah, I'll keep it, um, certainly keep it short. So, um, yeah, my name is Brett Snow, and, and um, I started off, I grew up, I was raised in a small farm town in downstate, my central um, state, Illinois, and and uh, we lived in a, uh, you know, a town of 1,700 population, no street lights, right, no traffic <laughs> lights, just a very small town, I loved it, it was a uh, very, very good um, in my opinion, it was a great community to grow up mm -hmm. in. We grew up in, out in the country and and um, and we just had so much space to run around and do a lot of things out there. And and um, so um, my career began there in in the small uh, farm town of, of Hayworth, Illinois. And and um, before that, I had always ran around and played in the timbers and you know we you know when you're a kid you play army right so all that right. kind of stuff and uh, you know uh then first blood came out right so then mm -hmm. you know all the first you know the, the green beret stuff and all that i was really so intrigued about it and i had an uncle of mine that was in uh he was in special forces so he was in green beret training and uh he passed away during his training and I had always wanted to, it was fascinating to me, and I always wanted to um, sort of live out his legacy. And that was my, that was my goal. That, that was my dream, really, growing up is, was to go into the military, get into special forces, and that is really what I wanted to do. Well, by midway through high school, um, my uh, junior year, I developed a senior, or uh, a seizure disorder. And so hmm. I started having seizures, and and I had uh, I had went through a growth spurt, um, a pretty rapid growth spurt, probably about a foot, foot and a few inches in a very short amount of time. And that tends to be uh, a, a side effect to a rapid growth spurts, right? It really puts a limitation oh, yeah. on what you want to do and what you can do in your life. And and of course, it um, it blocked my uh, ability to go to the military, right? right. And so. After that happened, I was just in a tailspin. You know, you know, I, I was a mess. I was rebelling, didn't know what to do with my life. And, and really, during even at the point of late adolescence and during this period of time, it's very scary to begin with of what you're going to do with your life, right? Mm -hmm. So, and it wasn't until my senior year, late senior year, I took a vocational, basically a vocational aptitude test to kind of see what you might be uh, skilled for, right? So. When you take that, it kind of gives you a measurement of what you might be good for. Um, and I was actually, um, I was actually scored to be a, an EMT, something I never really thought about. Um, mm. I have a cousin, I had a cousin of mine at the time that was a paramedic in Las Vegas, and still there was still a question as to whether or not I'd be able to do that, right, with the right. seizure history and being on medication. And, and so I called and talked to him, and and he did some research and found out that yes, of course I could do that. And so boom, uh, I really so I found a purpose, right? And so I found mm. a purpose and started going in that direction. And um, so I started um, got into an EMT school, really loved it, and had a really good, really it, it was kind of I felt it. Um, it was very paramilitary, right? So I'm like, mm -hmm. this is something that's very, very paramilitary. It's something that could certainly satisfy that desire and dream that I had um, prior to that. And so I started uh, the fire service, right? And so we had a volunteer fire department there and I joined that as a volunteer right out of high school. It was, uh, I was, uh, it was in 88, so I was 18 years old. And really fell in love with it. Fell in love with mm. the fire service altogether, and just kept going with paramedic school. 
um, worked as a medic in Champaign, and then uh, moved up to a suburb outside of Chicago in 93 and worked as a medic, uh, cross-trained medic uh, fireman there until 2000. And in 2000 is when uh, I was fortunate to get on the city of Chicago. Um, and I still am quite thankful for that even to today with the experience that I had. So in 2000, I started CFD and started off my career there and on the west side, engine 113. And I tell you what, uh, that the 20, a little over 20 years in Chicago was was just quite a ride, Keith. Mm, and I bet. it was, yeah, it was quite a ride. So here I am, small town kid, kind of went from small farm town to suburb to now a major urban area, right? And so I went through some, a lot of transitions, a lot of um, sort of, adapting to def different ways of living, right? So when you grow up in the country, there's it's just a whole different way of life. And then we go from that all the way to, you know, to into an urban area. You're living houses that are on top of each other. You don't have backyards, you have alleys <laughs> and right. And so, yeah. um, and so then, you know, it, it was just that, that, you know, I started on the West side and was very fortunate to be on the West side. It was very, it's a very busy battalion. It's, um, a uh, very sought out battalion on, in Chicago it was, uh, it used to be battalion 13, it's battalion 18 now. And, um, and so that's kind of where it began. That's, that's where my urban, uh, firefighting, gaining all the experience that I do have and carry with me today, uh, with lessons learned and, and desires to, to share that. That's where it began was Chicago's West side. Yes. Uh, you know, it's interesting that you you know you, you say um, you started out as a country boy um, in a small town. It's uh, the sort of the same. I was in a slightly bigger town, but it was uh, compared to where I ended up working, uh, very much a small town, and um, that was where my family had its roots. And, and similar to you, I was had my heart set on getting out away from the family, and one of those ways was join the military and. Uh, me and a bunch of my friends uh, were all slated to join the Marines. And I ended up finding out that in my senior year of high school that I was flat-footed. And apparently they don't like flat-footed gentlemen joining the Corps. And um, so it's, the funny story I always tell people is uh, in the recruiter's office, I was told, uh, we don't want you in the Corps, but I heard the Navy and the Air Force doesn't have uh, a flat-footed restriction. And I just was so you know, determined to be a Marine that I chose not to. And I stuck with the fire service much like you okay. did. And, um, but, you know, there's something to be said about that, but growing up in a small town. So you, you, you grow up in this very small town, um, country setting, you know, like you said, no street lights. I mean, I, I get that, you know, there's no traffic lights, you know, you start, you transition in your adult years um, into a very metropolitan area, you know, Chicago being what, one of the top three, four congested areas in, in this country. Yeah, right. The yeah. culture shock that that must have had, uh, you know, working in that. I'm not saying you hadn't been in Chicago, but having to work in that. Well, I tell you, it was very restricting, of course, right? And so, and then when you start, so now, now you, now you throw throw kids in the mix, and now you're trying to raise them yep. in an urban area, uh, and I really struggled with that. I, I can tell you, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I struggled with it because it, it was just one of those things where, what do you do with them, right? You can't. You don't have this big yard to, to run around in. You can't throw the football, kick the ball. And, you, you know, and, and uh, you know, I was in an environment where I walked down the road. Um, you know, if you look at Chicago ways of uh, measurement, um, I could walk down a blacktop road when I lived in the country, probably two blocks. And uh, there was a, you know, I called it a creek, right? But a creek, hmm. um, running, you know, running through, uh, through our area where I spent most of my childhood fishing and building rafts and, and uh, riding dirt bikes, you know, off road. And, and so it was just a way of life that I knew and I was familiar with. And so I really struggled um, to be quite honest with how to raise them in the city and, and to teach them sort of uh, a, a way of outdoors. And right. so here I am raising these, you know, raising these kids in, in the city. And I just, it was just hard for me to do that, you know, it's a yeah, it's a different way of life for sure. You yeah, know? no doubt. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, it's so you end up joining one of the busiest fire departments uh, in 2000. Um, within a year, you know, we have 9/11 happen, and that 
I know as a, as being on the job at, at that point, I had been on the job almost six years when 9-11 happened. And um, I know for a lot of us that, that that was a game changer. You know, I feel like a lot of things in the fire service changed. And after that happened, it was obvious that we were as fragile as the people we were helping. You know, we were just as human. We could break, bleed, and die just as quickly as everyone else that we help. And it was really after that, after 2001, that at least around me, uh, over here on the East Coast, that um, we started realizing that this job is affecting us. When did you start to notice that, you know, this job was was more than just running in the burden buildings and, and going to people's worst days? When did you realize it was starting to affect you? Well, I got to... I went through a lot of ups and downs, ups and downs, and I, I would say the and, and you know just speaking real quick on the 9/11, I went there uh, with six of us, and mm. we went there the uh, the last three days of rescue, um, and what an experience that was! I was very privileged to be able to go, um, and that was as you said was certainly an eye opener to the vulnerabilities of what we do, and to really. Uh, to really hone in on the what we thought was was certain is was not certain. So it really kind of brought to surface a lot of uncertainties when you're looking at building collapse. You're looking at things that we thought were you know was safe to go in under fire conditions or no longer. So it really um, forced us to step back and really kind of take a look at what we're doing. You know, um, but I can tell you that my first I, I would say my first experience with uh, this line of work. And it's the the real the the reality of its of its seriousness um, was the uh, the life loss of, of a good coworker of mine, a good friend. Uh, he was killed in line of duty. And that was my first experience to uh, the tragedies, the the ultimate sacrifice personally on this job. Him and I worked uh, together on. A, he was a he was a medic in Chicago, and I was a fireman in Chicago, and but we worked together um, as uh, you know together on, on a uh, on an engine in a suburb outside of Chicago. It's a very busy suburb actually, and and we we um, we um, recorded or, or or journaled about 100 fires a, a year, and it was a very busy um, area. One day, him and I were working together, and it was just one. It was just a typical day at the firehouse, right? We're just joking around, having a good time, and and we were um, having a day training uh, in hazmat. I can remember the day plainly uh, with uh, neighboring departments, right? So we were doing hazmat training, and we were just kind of joking around, and and afterwards we went back to to our firehouse, and a few days a week I would break away and go to go to school. Um, I was uh, in a grad school in a graduate program at the time and or undergraduate undergraduate program at the time. And I break away and for, you know, an hour or so at a time. Uh, and then when I did that, he would jump up in the front seat. So I was an officer and he would jump up in the front seat. And when I got back, of course, we would switch. And so we, uh, we switched and I headed out to school and I wasn't gone maybe 15 minutes, Keith, and they caught an alley garage and on the way to the alley garage, they collided with a neighboring engine, uh, a neighboring department, and they T-boned and he was killed. Hmm. Turning around, so I got a phone call that happened. I turned around, came back. The 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 scene was still chaotic, and I was and I ran up. Um and my gear I had left on the engine was on the street. And hmm. so the the members of the neighboring town of course knew me and they came running up and cause they thought I was under the engine cause the engine had tipped over. Mm. And so they were setting up to try and lift this rig up thinking that I was underneath there because my gear was on the street. And so that was, um, certainly a very emotional uh, moment. And, and after that was a certainly a life changer uh, for me. Um, the, the firehouse was never the same and but I struggled with survivor's guilt um, for probably a good solid two years. I just couldn't, I couldn't get past it. Couldn't get past feeling uh, responsible for it. It was a whole what if. Um, it was um, the that just, just that very 
debilitating stronghold of guilt um, that follows that. Yep. Um, had I not gone to school, he'd still be alive, right? That's our mindset, and that's what takes over. Um, but truly, it's it's really not so, right? It's right. it's one of those things where we try to put a level of certainty and apply it to something uh, to an event that's already taken place, and we can't do that, even though we would like to, and even though it's a natural thing to think that way that, you know, if I didn't, you know, this should have happened. If, if I would have done this, this would have happened. It's a natural way to think. Um, but it's, it's really, it's, it's a false sense of, um, assurance. Um, and so I battled that for, for quite some time. And until I went to uh, talk to our uh, chaplain, Father McCrone, uh, in Chicago, great guy, been around for years and years and years. And he helped me uh, realign my way of thinking and really to realize that, um, that we aren't, we aren't designed to carry our yesterdays. Right. And, uh, we are not given the power to control the outcomes of our actions. It's not up to us. Um, and so, uh, you know, uh, adopting that way of thinking really helped me recalibrate my mind and my way of thinking and, and even helped me develop a, a healthier stress mindset on this line of work, realizing that we are human. Um, we're not superhuman. Mm -hmm. Um, and that whole concept of hero, um, we need to be careful with that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, because when we start, when we start identifying ourselves as heroes, or if we start, um, really kind of taking that in when people call you heroes or they place that sticker on you or that cape on you, um, we, we start feeling that sense of, okay, well, um, I must be, or I have to live up to it and knowing that, um, we are very vulnerable to this job and the side effects that come with it. And we got to be really careful when we start thinking about the whole concept of hero and heroism. You know, we, for a long time, and you know, my family has this roots going back to like 1875 in the fire service. And for a very long time, uh, it was inundated, just like pounded into your head that you're invincible, that what you do is, is hero work. And that, you know, nothing bad happens to heroes but we all knew that you know there was always that risk and whenever you have a moment very you know like like what you had uh which you know survivor's guilt is a huge huge thing and um i've had my own experience with it and it is out of everything i've been through and i'm sure you can attest to this survivor's guilt is one of the hardest things to get over because you would have could have should have every single situation however um, one of the things that I always strive for with all that I do um, these days is um, trying to, you know, when I talk to people trying to be like, well, why is it we have that mindset? Why is that mindset that, you know, we are invincible, that we're different than the people we're helping? Why why do we have that mindset? Why, why have we accepted that? And, you know, I always, I always throw this saying out to people, it's that whole 175 years of tradition unimpeded by progress mentality that you know the first responder world has but specifically the firehouse has had the longest and it's um it's a handicap for us you know it, it's you know yes it's, it's it's about death someone died someone died on the job your friend died and that is a terrible situation but it was a learn it was a teachable moment for you and you and you ended up utilizing that and and that's huge and and that's something those of us whether we're still on the job or you know people like us who are beyond the job now that's a tool we can use for the future generations why why in your mind and in your words uh do you feel it's so important to be uh, pro proactive with us with your experiences if we don't adopt a healthier stress mindset if we don't look at what we do and realize our vulnerabilities, realize our human limitations. And um, then we are setting ourselves up for a huge fall. Just like, just like if, if when we do something, when something goes well, right? When something, when, when an outcome, when there's a desired outcome on a, on, on a fire ground or in the back of an ambulance, you get, you, you, your innovation is successful, you get uh, your IVs are successful, you, you make a good field diagnosis, 
Um, you force a door that was probably fortified, but you made it right, made through it. Um, you made it down the hallway, you pulled somebody out. All these kind of things are, are desired outcomes and they make you feel good afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. And so then we start developing this, uh, this almost a uh, false sense of empowerment, meaning that, um, that that's what I did and that's what I can do. Um, and this is what I will do next time. And, and, and so it starts to kind of rattle your humility, right? So you start, um, becoming a little more, I would say, uh, almost conceited, right? Mm -hmm. And again, with that sense of, it's a false sense of self-empowerment, meaning that we can, there isn't nothing, there, there's nothing we can't do, right? Mm -hmm. There's there, right? Um, but it's okay. So here, here's the thing. And this is, this is how I look at it. Is if you are okay with talking about or sharing or having that mindset that this is what I did, I did this, right? And we start struggling with those moral values um, that, and those questions of, okay, well, if he isn't here, if he isn't going to do anything about it, and he allows this to happen, well, I guess we're going to do it. I'm going to do it. He's not mm -hmm. going to do anything about it. I'm going to. Um, and so we start drifting away from our, our, our spiritual growth, our spiritual side, and, and we start turning away from that. And we really start looking more at ourselves. And we start looking at uh, that we are under our own power um, and under our own strength and abilities. Um, which is very dangerous uh, in, in a way, it's very dangerous. But so what we really need to, to really focus on, what we really need to adopt and realize is that um, we, we are not under our own power and we are there because it's not that he is absent. It's he is, we are working for him. We are his, his instruments. Mm. And all we have the power to do is to put our foot forward and act, right? So we are given the power to act, to go in motion, and whatever the outcome is, Keith, is not up to us. So we, if we miss, if we can't force the door, it's okay. We tried, right? We learned from it. Um, if we can't get down the hallway and get that three-year-old, we tried our best. It's not on us, right? We just did our job, um, and whatever the outcome is, is the outcome. We have no control over the final outcomes of our actions. We just have the control of our actions. And we also have the ability to control what we think, what we believe, and what we do, right? Which means that we have the ability to um, to take, to, to conceptualize what just happened in that event, right? So if we are carrying around self-empowerment and we fail at getting down the hallway, we fail at forcing that door, we then now own it and we then carry that tomorrow and we carry it with us. And I'm telling you, it is dangerous. It's disastrous, and it will eventually get you um, if we don't early on in this career or at some point in time adopt a correct, healthier mindset, stress mindset of what we do and what our limitations are. That that was said very, that was amazing. Um, and it's, it's so true. It's, we get this, I'm not going to be able to say it as good as you did, but uh, for sure that we get this mindset that we're, you know, we're, we're doing God's work or we're, we're, whereas, you know, we're going to intervene in God's plan or whatever it is. And we get this, that's why, you know, they always refer to uh, paramedics as paragods, right? Um, kind of part of that same premise. And it's like, we're, we're not, we're fooling ourselves if we think we're actually changing the, the, the intended outcome or plan of that situation. Uh, and I think I agree with you. I, I honestly think that that's a lot of what weighs on us uh, as time goes on, um, because we 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 aren't at a place right now where we've been taught how to deal with all that, where at least a majority of us haven't been taught how to deal with that when we're active on the job, uh, you know, whatever that is. And um, it's such a huge, huge part of it that we don't want to understand or accept that there are certain um the outcome is going to be what the outcome is. We just happen to be part of it. And, right. uh, you know, and that's, that's a big piece. And I'll be honest. Uh, I, I didn't understand that until I had left the job. Um, 
And for a long time, that's probably why so much of the job haunted me and, and did what it did to me and do, does to a lot of my other uh, friends that are still on the job. And, um, and you said it poetically. In a, in a no doubt, Keith. And I can tell you this. Um, it took me 25 years of a 32 year career to uh, to realize that. Right. Yep. And so it took me three divorces later. Um, it took me um, debilitating anxiety and uh, almost a huge mental collapse. Right. So after the, the death of, of my friend, what happens sometimes? We kind of drift back into our own ways, right? We drift, mm -hmm. drift back into our old ways and start, you know, we're just catching fires. You know, things are back, you know, status quo. We just go back to that. Um, after a few more line of duty deaths, right? So a few more uh, of my coworkers were killed. Um, it, it was one of those things that, again, I didn't realize how far away, uh, well, how far away from um, my spiritual side I was going uh, until a major divorce hit, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the, and, and so we can look at, we can look at it a few different ways as well, is that when we talk about post-traumatic stress, whether it's in the military, fire service, um, police, you know, police force, it's not always about what we're exposed to uh, on the job. We also have to incorporate that we have a life outside of the job as well, just like the general population. And so uh, we are also going to be compounded then now of the stress that we have on a personal life you know, to that, what we are experiencing on the job. Just went into this, this dark time of anger and uh, resentment and um, to the point where there was a there was a moment in time where uh, I forgot where I lived, and oh. I was on a truck that served both of those areas, and we were out on a run, and we got on the radio or we got a, a call on the radio for a structure fire, right? So for a still alarm on uh, Drake Avenue, which was a street that it was on, and I was an officer, so I was up front. My driver, you know, luckily um, or thankfully rather, that he knew where he was going. And I'm here in this street, Drake Avenue, Drake Avenue. And I, for the, I just couldn't, Keith, I could not, for the life of me, figure out why that street was familiar, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what, why is Drake familiar? I know that street. Why do I, you know, from that point where we caught that call on the radio, I could not tell you even how to get to that street. Couldn't even tell you how to get there. And so it wasn't until we were turning on the street that I realized that I live on that street mm. and that still alarm address was five houses away from where I live and that was a that was a wake-up moment for me where okay I have to step away um, I have to recalibrate my way of thinking I gotta have a little re reset so I stepped off the streets because I was no good right mm. so I stepped off the streets went into research and development um, which gave me an opportunity to to just kind of um, kind of recalibrate myself. Um, and during that time, which was very much a divine opportunity where I studied cancer biology and, and wellness, and which led me to, uh, which then later led me to a uh, going into a seminary for a doctorate degree in counseling. But it wasn't until, Keith, during that time, uh, that I dropped a knee and fully surrendered my life uh, to God and uh, and took on his way instead of my way. And that completely changed my life and the power of forgiveness where um, I was hanging on to it. I was angry. I was living in anger, walking in anger. Um, I couldn't get over these bouts of anxiety. Couldn't just couldn't deal with it. That, for me, is where my passion grew um, to help others do the same, help them realize the, how important it is to work on your, your spiritual life, to work on your, your, your personal and, and your, your, your mental health and your physical health. And, mm. and, uh, and so that is what I'm doing now. And so um, after retiring in 2020, 
of October, I moved to Florida, and I started a, an online uh, counseling ministry, working with trauma and working with uh, first responders. Um, and I'm now working with a an agency uh, in Florida, uh, helping them build a, a local first responder um, peer support program uh, for about 21 counties. Hmm. And, uh, That's incredible. And it's... Um... It's a good spot for us to take a quick break. We're going to come back to this in one second, folks. This is an incredible conversation. Uh, we just want to give a quick shout out, give a minute for our sponsor, First Responder Coaching. Coaching is here now for all first responders and their families. When it comes to the job and the stresses that come with it, we at First Responder Coaching know exactly how it can affect every aspect of your life and the lives of those around you. That's because we are first responders and their families. First responders are well-versed in reacting to a situation. It is literally what we do as firefighters, law enforcement, dispatch, and EMS personnel. When trauma enters our lives, we react to it by tucking it down away somewhere in our minds but we carry it with us and never really goes away. We need to stop carrying trauma into every aspect of our personal and professional lives. It's time to start having proactive, powerful conversations right now to gain a better balance in the responders' whole life. This is true for their families, especially the spouses. Take that first step in making some of the most important improvements in your life. Visit www.1strespondercoaching.org now to make an appointment to chat with FRC. A coach will reach out, and before you know it, you'll be on your way to living a proactively fit lifestyle. So yeah, Brett, you know it's um, it's it's weird, and and maybe you you'll understand. I know you're going to understand this. Yeah. So I have found that there is almost like an age bracket when it comes to those of us who have sort of um come full circle but at least seen the clarity in what we need to do in life to be healthy and and that's both mentally physically and spiritually right yes yep and i and i almost feel like there's an age bracket and with who i i've networked with with doing you know everything with you know mental wellness and trying to advocate for all this there's almost like this 36 to 53 year old bracket where everyone who's doing this is in that and it's a, it's weird and i'm guessing you're you're around that age you're around 52 or so yeah um and it, it and it's weird because a lot of us uh this would be my 26 year if i was still on the job you had 32 okay. i mean there's yeah. people who you know 25 to 30 years who are out here you know preaching this stuff now and it's weird because we're the old guys we're right right what always happened when you got on the job? You wanted to listen to the old guys, right? Yeah. And that could be very powerful. And and going back to what you were just saying, um, you know, with with spirituality, with with finding this this way that led you to, you know, a a healthier, a happier lifestyle. Um, let's start talking about like how how did that look? How did that transformation sort of begin when you really uh we'll, we'll we'll talk like maybe when you left the job in 2020 what did yeah. that look like kind of trans you know transforming into this this different uh position what do they do what's the next step because you know we don't talk about what happens after retirement we don't and, and i tell you that is a very important talk about a topic to talk about when we look at being repurposed right and um what happens when you set down that the area of your life that that um that part of you that you identified with and and now who are you now you know and uh it's very very uh, important to look at and, and i can tell you it was i had this i had this drive this passion uh to really i i, I want to say to to bring to bring faith, to bring God back into the fire service and where I, where I think it, it's very important to do. I think that there's a lot of walls up. I think there's a lot of resistance to that. Um, unfortunately, as a, as a fire service, when do we find ourselves actually incorporating uh, God, right? Is at a line of duty death. Yep. When they die, right. when people get right. married, when they die, right? Yep. That's it. Yep. And, and that's unfortunate. It's one of those things. And I've been to 10, I've been in 10 processions in Chicago alone, mm. uh, with uh, guys killed on the job. And what do we do? Right. So we get, 
we we get in a procession, we drive to to a church, we go through a um, whole service, and then we go to the to the cemetery, and then we take that red phone and we wrap it back up and we throw it in the closet, right? Mm. Um, and then we and, and you know we talk about spiritual, we talk about um, uh, anything that has to do with with faith and God and and you know His instructions. We don't talk about it. Right. And, and, and I can tell you, I was guilty of it for, for quite some time. I shrank back, right? I didn't have fearless faith. And it, it took me when I went to R&D and I worked with a couple of guys who were hard chargers, hard charging West Siders. One of the guys that I worked with for a number of years in squad two, um, they weren't, they weren't afraid of it. They stood yeah. up and they uh, weren't, they didn't shrink back. They weren't afraid to lift his name up and to share their position and their faith and i tell you they were inspirations to me um because i'm like wow okay if they can do it i can do it too because i was concerned about how weird i sounded i was concerned about you know being with these tough firemen uh who i gained respect uh from working with them and now what are they going to think of me when i talk about uh you know when i when i talk about hey listen um you know we're not alone Right? We're not under our own power, and uh, there is a greater power than, than us, and he gives us what we need to get through things, and, and we need to put his armor on just like we put the fire the fire gear on. When I retired, that was my, my, my mission, right? Is This is what I wanted to do. I wanted to, to bring, uh, I wanted to bring his word back into the fire service. I wanted to bring God back um, and make him an intricate part of what we do, and um, and so when I left and retired, I had this ministry, right? And so, but then what happens? COVID hit and you couldn't right. have presentations. You couldn't enter, you, you couldn't um, get yourself out there. You couldn't network. And so it was a struggle um, with that. And so what, what happened? Then I started struggling with um, being repurposed, right? I started struggling with purpose and it was, it was destroying me because I, I, because I was no longer, I wasn't a fireman anymore, right? So, um, so I had to be, I had to be repurposed. And, and when you don't have that sense of purpose, you don't have that sense of self-value, that sense of self-worth, yes. it will destroy you. Right. Absolutely. And I struggled with that and struggled with that. I put, I put God in the back seat, you know? Uh -huh. And so I put him back in the front seat and, and uh, turned my way of uh, thinking around and, Boom, instantly. It was just one of those things that, uh, okay, everything's good. Um, he renewed my strength, my, my spirit, and um, I was back on my on my feet and walking in the spirit instead of in the flesh. And um, again, that's just one of those things. It was a very valuable uh, lesson learned for me because when you go through an experience of post-traumatic injury, um, which is very common in the fire service, police service, military, first responders, whatever we do, um, it it's very common, right? But it's not a life sentence. It's not something mm -hmm. that it, it, we can overcome it. We can beat it. Mm -hmm. But once you have experienced that and gone through it, um, I believe personally that we are vulnerable uh, to experience it again if we don't um, guard our hearts and minds. And if we don't do that, we make ourselves again vulnerable. And where we become vulnerable, it's no different than being complacent. You go to, you, you know, you go to a building and an alarm goes off you know, three or four times a day, and then you go the fifth time and you think that it's BS and it's actually fire. What what happens? You're off guard, right? You're caught off guard. You don't have your gear with you. Um, and that's when people get hurt and killed. Same thing. Um, and my passion is to, is to help other first responders and their family members recognize that and, um, and recognize the value in doing that because um, it is it is and can be a lifesaver. In the fire service, it's, it's so weird that we've, and, and I don't know, how, it doesn't even make sense that we've moved so far away from, you know, believing in something. And, you know, for the most part, the fire service has always been, you know, God and, and you know, the, the, the uh, Christian faith. And it's, it, it was always from the beginning to end, it was always part of it. But yet, you know, we lose our way and we lose, we lose that faith from what we see because it's so easy and that's the key word. It's easier to to be angry for yeah. for God letting this happen. 
you know, all the horrible things you see, you know, whatever it is, kids dead, old ladies dead, doesn't matter. You, you blame him and it's, and it's, we, we end up becoming so distant from our own beliefs that are dwelled into so many different parts of the job. Absolutely. So in the inconceivables, so what do they do? They weaken faith hmm. and they strengthen doubt. And that's what starts to happen is we start leaning more uh, on doubt and that becomes then our way of thinking. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a dangerous, um, it's a dangerous path to be on. You know, it's, it's part of, you know, you, you hit on a couple of times, you know, purpose and you, and you even said identity and a lot of us, you know, uh, and this, this could all come full circle with, you know, losing your spirituality and, and your beliefs and everything else. Uh, a lot of us hold our identity and our purpose in that badge that we put on our, on our, on our chest every day. And, uh, and that's, that could be metaphorically or, or physically every day you have a badge, you know? Um, and so many people, just like what you just said, they lose their way when they get off the job and they're no longer firefighter Smith or paramedic Smith or whatever it is, they don't know who they are. And it's, we have to find who we really are while we're on the, before we're on the job, but at least while we're on the job at this point, we have to find out who we really are because when you no longer have the substance, the material, the job, the title, maybe the family, whatever it is, you have to know who you are. And that's when you end up doing that tailspin. And I, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's a huge component of, of healing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and the, and there's there's another uh, very important thing to talk about too, and and I, I got a lot of stuff that that I can share too as far as some of my research projects, but um, something that that I found to be an area of discussion, which is uh, certainly important, is when we talk about um, retirement, right? And we talk mm -hmm. about setting down uh, who we believed to be and or what we identified with. When we set that down and now we question, who are we? Um, when am I, um, what is there for me to do now? What is my next purpose? Um, and so I, I think what we need to, to really start thinking about is when you're on a job and you are consistently going to work and you are consistently going on these, on these runs where we have been conditioned to operate uh, separate of emotion. Right. So we've learned to operate separate of emotion of emotion in order for us to complete the tasks. Your conditioning for those runs and for those incidences start to go away. Mm -hmm. Right. You don't need it anymore. You don't need that conditioning anymore. So then what happens, Keith? So now, once you are outside of this line of work for a while, you start to now experience emotion. Right. You start to experience emotion. You start to experience these chemicals and signals that are coming to your mind. Right. So our, our brain and minds are two different things. Our brain's physical. Our mind is, is, is spiritual. It's immaterial. But now we are starting to get bombarded with that which we're not familiar with anymore. And so any kind of a stressful situation at that time when we are conditioned or uh, we have the ability to ignore it because we are in motion, we are in task mode, we're in mission mode. But when that goes away, when there's no reason for that anymore, now it's a it's a mis it's a it's a misplaced um, it's a misplaced signal being flooded into your mind on just a, on, on a an area of stress mm. because your body is so conditioned to respond in a certain way that you don't really um, you don't really recognize it. Because you're on the you're on the way to a fire, right? You're on right. the way to an, an ambulance run, or you're you're on the way to a shooting call. You don't really recognize that that emotion that's going on, those chemicals, because it is preparing you for what is to come, right? So it's a time spent um, always being prepared. But when you're no longer in those situations, but you're still getting those signals, it becomes now you're aware of it, and you don't know what to do with it. And it looks like, and it seems like anxiety where it really is just your body's conditioned. You know, you're, you, you, it's a brain, it's, it's how we condition our brain to be right. So our body and brain is just, it's just responding to what we've trained it to do. Mm. Now we have to retrain it and that's a process, right? Yeah. Um, 
the one one thing I wanted I wanted to make sure we talked about is uh, is your book. Um, okay. Uh, which is titled "Take a Ride on the West Side." Um, yes. My of course it's Christmas time, and I decided to wait until a couple weeks ago to order it. And mine is somewhere in limbo; it'll be here soon, so yeah. I haven't had a chance to read it. But uh, if you can give us a synopsis on that, I'd love to hear. Um, yeah. What that's uh, what you did with that. And I did that for two reasons. One is is that I know that um, of course there's a lot of firemen, right, that yeah. aren't big yeah. readers, right? <laughs> um, and uh, so I wanted a quick read. And at the same time. Uh, I didn't want a thick book because, you know, in many, many situations, even myself, I find myself not having the time to read anything that is a thick source. And so I wanted to do, I wanted to make something that was a quick read um, and something that was impactful. And what this is, this is a, uh, this is a, this is a snapshot of two years in Chicago uh, where I journaled. Um, so I journaled, uh, one of my years on engine 113 on the West side, and I journaled my last year on squad two. And I wanted to put those once I, when I retired, I wanted to put those in a, in a, almost like a journal form book, hmm. um, to where it talks about our experiences and I, uh, and, and I apply, um, some, you know, and I elaborate on some of the incidences and I get into some, some detail. And so for me, I wanted to, to create a, a street view perspective of what we do and at the same time, how I sort of went through my transition of when I started and sort of how I became once I left the job and who mm -hmm. I was. Well, how did, what did I look like? Um, and how did this job impact me throughout the years? Um, and the one, the good thing is it's not a self-help book, right? Mm -hmm. This is just a, it's a good read. It's a good read. And I, and I, and I wanted it to be, um, and I kind of targeted it for uh, spouses mm. and for those of the general population who are just curious. It's really not, uh, I didn't really gear it towards uh, first responders and firemen um, because they read this stuff all the time, right? They go on runs, they do all this. There's a lot of lessons learned in here that I think it's a value uh, for uh, people who are just starting out the job or starting out this line of work and maybe have an interest in it. Um, and there is some stuff good in here to, to read, but it, it, it's valuable for spouses um, mm. because there's one there's one thing that I think you would probably agree is there is a way of thinking. There's a mindset when we're in this line of work that uh, we don't go home and talk about our runs, right? right. We, keep, right. We, we protect our spouse from the things that we did that we did or seen. Um, and it sounds reasonable to do that. Because we think about, oh, I don't want to traumatize them with secondary trauma. And that, that's okay. Um, and But what, what's happening is, is that we're not doing them any favors. And we're not doing ourselves any favors because no. we're shutting them out, right? So we expect them to help walk, help us through some emotions that we're having or, or to sort of understand uh, maybe some the, the period of time of, of isolation or period of time of withdrawal um, because we need to sometimes we need to sort of uh, reset ourselves but we expect them to understand that and they're not going to understand it because they don't know what we just went through they don't know that we were just carrying a two-year-old they don't uh, right. that, that uh, you know drowned in a bucket they don't know that um you know that we missed uh we missed a a, a four-year-old in, in the fire right so mm -hmm. they don't know that stuff and until we open up until we are until we get rid of that stigma, until we stop being, stop letting this job, the impacts of this job be a secret, the stigma is going to remain. Yep. PTSD is going to continue to rise. Suicides are going to continue to rise. We need to talk about it. We need other people to understand it. We need to be able to share it. We yes. need to support. If you can't support, if you can't rely on your spouse, if you can't rely on the one and only person that you are one with, if you can't rely on them and depend on them and share what you are experienced with them, uh, I can tell you what's ine inevitable is divorce, right? It's happening. Right. So whether it happens next year or two years or 20 years down the road when you retire, uh, it's going to happen. So you, they are an intricate part of your life. And so what one thing that with this book that I really stress is it's for the spouses to read because a lot of times the first responder has a hard time or doesn't take the time 
to share their street street view perspective with their spouse. And so we're leaving them hanging. We're leaving them in uh, in a um, we're we're pushing them away. Right? right. And so they are unfamiliar. They they're they don't um, they don't recognize and, and nor are they aware of what it looks like, what what we're dealing with, what we went through. Um, and so this was a big reason for me to to write that it was not necessarily for uh, the first responders themselves, but um, for their family members. I 100% agree with you on that. 100% agree. Uh, so again, Brett, this has been a, this has been an amazing conversation. We're going to have to have you come back on. I can think of a few people that would uh, love to have pop in on like a uh, three guest uh, interview here and share the same thoughts. Uh, I have a few names in mind that we may may do that in the future. Yeah. Um, so this has been this has been amazing. So again, folks, uh, Brett Snow, uh, former Chicago Fire, uh, current and now correct me if I'm wrong, pastoral uh, counseling is what you would call yeah. what you do now. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So um, it's on the, it's in the book too, but it's uh, it's Victory Over Fire is my website, and yeah. I just do um, peer support talks. I do spiritual conditioning, um, and uh, and I look at temperament, which is a big thing with. Um, with our inner programming and uh yeah so that that's my thing and then then right now i'm working with another agency to help build them uh a, a peer support program but that's what i'm doing yeah awesome so look him up on uh on social media folks i'll put his links uh to his website uh in the show notes as well so you can find him along with uh the link to his book uh, make sure you check that out it's a nice short read for us uh for us bucket heads and our bucket house uh, bucket head uh, spouses <laughs> <laughs> uh for a nice quick easy uh maybe maybe read in between meals or runs uh so check them out folks uh thanks for tuning in today again this was uh brett snow talking with keith hanks uh brett thanks again brother i appreciate you coming on hey thank you so much i i so much appreciate this time and and um just it's giving back right and just it's all about. trying to help trying to help set the right course for others so. absolutely all right folks till next time this was the resilient responder podcast Stay safe. Awesome.